0: Wait, I I thought you were suggesting like a Lady Nobel.
1: (laughs) Not that far from it. I was so excited when I got Lady Tenure. (laughs) It was pink and everything. Almost as good as
0: man tenure. Not quite. Welcome to Two Psychologists, for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here is my friend and colleague, Mickey Enzlicht. Mickey, how are you doing today?
2: Very well. You know, uh, uh, we broke rules already yesterday. You came over to my house to have mac and cheese. Uh, Surprise, uh, mac and cheese. Uh, That was always a pleasant surprise. Uh, I would much rather be with you in person, uh, but we're now really in lockdown and and, and things are getting... Serious again?
0: We are, we are, Um, and I'll just say I didn't intend to come in, but uh, then your wife had made this mac and cheese, and it's just so hard to say no to. So I was, uh, I, I, um, set aside my better judgment. I I was too tempted in the moment. Um. So yeah, what uh, do we do? We want to uh, talk about how very bad wizards are
2: slandering you again, or is that are are we just slandering me? I guess us. (laughs) us, yeah, so you know, I feel they uh so what do they do they in their two hundredth episode, uh, uh they decided to call us douches, I think I think they were um, saying that discussing beer is douchey, <laughs> which it obviously <laughs> is, clearly, uh, and then they had this 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 special sound effect, uh which they said, you know this moment of douche brought to you by two psychologists four beers, um I thought it was. Fucking hilarious. Uh, you know, good on them. I must admit, though, instead of focusing on, on that comment, I think we should focus on David Pizarro's predictions about the election. Um, so in that, uh, you know, you know, unlike you, you know, where you put stakes and you were right as well, you I, about a year and a half ago predicted that Joe Biden would win the Democratic primary and said you would eat a bug on air if you were wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, he also won the presidency. Uh, but but Dave Pizarro and maybe Tam, less so Tam, but Dave especially, he said it would be a cakewalk. It's going to be a landslide. Joe Biden was going to win. Hands down, he's going to sleep well that night. That was like, what, three weeks ago? And I think only now we have some, some calm.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was perhaps in retrospect overly optimistic. Never try and predict the future. It always goes wrong. That's my motto.
2: <laughs> so you you have no negative feelings no no bad blood uh, you don't you don't want to punch them in the face I, the back of the I head
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just delighted to be mentioned and I think it's very kind of them to promote us so thanks guys yes
2: that that's true you know as long as they keep on punching down they're going to beef up their progressive bona fides that's that, that's that's that, that's my thing exactly. We have a special guest, a return guest. Uh, this is Anne Wilson from Wilfrid Laurier University, who is a full professor there. Um, she's got lots of uh, you know awards. She's a former Canada Research Chair. She's a current uh, fellow at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Studies. Um, and uh, all around, just really, really cool person. We, we really like Anne, and uh, we just want to have a conversation today. So it's going to be less of a an interview-style uh, episode and more just kind of us, the three of us, sitting, discussing paper. So welcome to the show, Anne. Hey, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. You were one of the last academics uh, that I saw in person. I said last academics not affiliated with U of T. We were, uh, we were on a flight together to New Orleans uh, for SPSB, like, like a, many years ago, it seems like.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was about a million years ago. And I think we, we ran from one gate. We were like dashing to try to get the plane and it just didn't work so we got a chance to chat for a while
2: yes that's right i think we even had a beer together yeah. um yeah so, so that was fun and and, and thank you for, for for joining us it's going to be uh i think an interesting episode I think. right so the beer thing is a great segue is it not it def- definitely is. Are you well? Are
0: you joining us this evening? For once, I'm drinking beer. Uh, I have a Blood Brothers keg deals and kickbacks. I found this in my fridge. Not sure where it came from, but I'm actually looking forward to drinking beer tonight. This is a night where I'm like actually excited to drink beer. So I'm gonna crack this bad boy open. What have you guys got? And
1: Well, I decided to try to go for something relatively local, so the first one i 've got is an Elora Borealis, which is from as you might guess Elora just outside of the Waterloo region where i 'm at right now
2: open lovely and i 've got i 'm like just hanging out there constantly these days. Uh, Collective arts has got the uh, the local brew pub uh, now, in my neighborhood i 've got uh, something called Surround Sound Lotus um it's a double ipa which i have no idea what that means other than it's really really strong it's like eight eight point two percent i think i've got a second one that's also that strong so uh, tomorrow should be uh, pleasant oh boy I well i admire your dedication
0: cheers. cheers cheers nice okay so mickey
2: what are we talking about today so today we decided to um, to discuss, really, uh, we wanted to discuss mostly two papers, but uh, given current events and current uh, levels of outrage, we're probably going to sneak in uh, a third paper that we'll discuss. Um, but I guess we can think of the theme uh, of today's show as... Um, Perhaps uh, you know bias on campus, or you know sexism and uh, more broad discrimination um, in in the field of psychology, and maybe on campuses more generally. And we're going to start by discussing a paper uh, that has many, many authors. Um, the paper is called The Future of Women in Psychological Science. It was published very, very recently uh, in Perspectives on Psychological Science. The lead authors are June Gruber, Jane uh, Mendel, uh, Kristen Lindquist, Tony Schmader, and I can go on and on. Um, there, there are many, many authors. Uh, the rest, I believe, are listed alphabetically. Um, so with lots of really... Uh, People that that I admire and respect, including uh, past guests and future guests, uh, for sure. Um, so I see here, for example, that uh, Betsy Levy palak is, is an author. She'll be will be hanging out with her soon. So yes, we want to talk about uh, this paper and then another one, which we'll talk about, let's say, after the break. Um, but I'm not sure who wants to uh, to, to start us off. Uh, in uh, kind of a summary, uh, what about you, Ul? Have you read the paper? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I did. I read it very carefully. I have highlights and everything. But I feel like Mickey said you assigned this
2: reading. I feel like you should have to summarize. All right, I just I'll, I'll summarize. So essentially, uh, this is actually an excellent paper. I uh, I didn't read it until today. I just I I, I heard all about it. I uh, got some some Twitter love uh, the past few months, and. Uh, in my opinion it's a it 's a pretty fair and balanced take on the status of women in psychology you know currently speaking, and I think it's a very uh, it takes a very empirical approach examining you know uh, specific empirical studies that might bear on the question of um, differences in outcomes differences in uh, rates of promotion in rates of hiring in participation etc, noting any discrepancies and occasionally opining about what the, why those discrepancies might be there. Um, and they go through a you know an entire list of of, of possible spots where there might be discrepancies, and I'm not going to remember them all uh, off the top of my head um, but you know I think they, they start out with things like um, just simply participation in, 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 in psychology uh, to begin with and I think it's very well known that psychology at least at the level of undergraduates and graduates um, is is dominated by women it's, it's mostly women i think in the, uh, in the in the high seventy percentages for Undergraduates and even I think graduate uh, graduate students as well, um, but that that percentage starts dwindling um, as you get into assistant professorships, associate professorships, and then by full professorships you have a greater degree of, of disparities. Um, and again, they go on through various issues like you know career advancement, for example. Um, they look at, uh, you know, uh, financial compensation, so actual paid uh, disparities or possible disparities. Um, they look at, you know, service uh, disparities, et cetera. So I'm not going to go through all of it because there's, there's a lot there. It's like a, a 34-page paper. Um, but it details all the, the spots where there might be disparities and kind of d- d- discusses them. So that's kind of a, a really, really, you know, bird's eye view of, of, of what they've done. Um, so I'm not sure uh, from there, uh, uh, And you want to maybe start us off since you already uh, said no to my first request?
1: <laughs> well, I, I really liked this paper and um, maybe more than I was, I hadn't actually read it yet, so I'd heard about it. Um, but um, I did, I agree with you, Mickey, I thought that it was quite balanced. And one of the things that I find about some of the research in this area or some of the rhetorical um, frame of this area is that sometimes there'll be a lot of focus on where there are gaps, but not a lot of attention to why those gaps exist. And I think that it's really important to have this balanced understanding of where the gaps are, where things are actually going pretty well. Um, And then to whatever extent we have the data available, what are the actual reasons for those kinds of gaps, right? So, I mean, some of the things that they highlighted too is that You know there are some places where gender equity is going pretty well. Um, So you know there are lots of women in um, the field in general. If you look at the more um, junior levels, early career levels, you're seeing you know an influx of more and more uh, women. Um, When it comes to actually getting hired, so for you know the actual process of the job interview or the you know the application process, um, women have as good a chance of getting hired as men in some cases, perhaps a little bit of an advantage. Um, and when they apply for grants, they also uh, do as well. Um, and in some cases, you know, there's very little difference. And if anything, they may have an edge in some cases, right? Um, so where there's the discrepancy is in part, who's actually going up for those positions. So fewer women end up um, in those applicant pools than you would expect. Um, and fewer people, fewer women end up in the grant competitions than you would expect on the basis of the numbers, right? So so those kinds of gaps, you've got to figure out, okay, well, why is that happening? And it's not necessarily because anybody is directly, you know, it's not a discrimination um, situation right at that level. Um, so I thought that was, that was quite helpful. Is that your general sense of the the way that the paper was laid out um, too. So it, it seemed like that was kind of what they did was they looked at each of these kinds of uh, gaps and then they tried to dig into why these things might exist and what are some of the explanations for them.
2: Yeah, that, that certainly uh, coincides with, 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 yeah, my assessment as well. Um, I think one, one thing we probably should hone in on maybe relatively quickly is um that they do identify, you know, some gaps and I, 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 that I think they spend a, a bit more time on. And I think the one that they they focus on is that women, um, in psychology at least, seem to publish less, um, and they also seem to be cited less. And they also seem to, um, I, I, I believe, uh, are less likely to publish in like, high-prestige you know, journals. Um, i believe i although i i'm not sure about that last one um so that was one that i think uh i, I think there's you know people will be bringing their hands over that disparity um but i think it, my sense and i so I, I you know I, I did hear a a very brief podcast put out by i think it was by APS where some of the authors were invited to talk about this paper and they uh, the at least the authors who were on were expressed some surprise actually um surprised that uh, things look as rosy uh, as they do uh, for women. At, you know, again, in terms of at least at the, certainly at the, uh, at the undergraduate, graduate level, but even at the assistant level, uh, assistant professor level, and uh, uh, even, you know, at rates of, of, of tenuring, um, they seem to be pretty good, um, not this kind of these gross inequities. Um, so there was some surprise there. Um, there are, of course, disparities, the level of associate and full professors, but, um, and they do touch upon this a little bit, um, but there it's really hard to know what to make of that, mm-hmm. right? Because these are cohort effects potentially. These are potentially like historical. Um, artifacts where, you know, women's participation in the labor force has increased over time, although I I guess there's some evidence now that it's plateaued in the past uh, maybe decade or so. Um, But of course, you know, if you're looking at professors who are in their 70s, there there will be more men just because, you you know, people are in their 70s, the more men are participating in the labor force more generally. Um, So there are these cohort effects there.
1: Yeah. And some of the findings for eminence and things like that. So, you know, top awards and that sort of thing is also something that it's hard to tell right now whether that's something that's going to start to even out more as there are more women who make their way up through those ranks.
0: So, I guess let's talk about those disparities in publication and citation rates, right? Which is, you said um, that people are going to get upset about that. And I guess my question is is that something to get upset about? Like, I as I was reading this, I was thinking about like, I don't work as hard. You know, we talked on the last episode, I was like, I don't think I work that hard. I, I, you know, I mean, I was sort of joking, but I don't work as hard as I might, right? I choose to do other things with my life as well that are important to me, like spend time with friends, travel, be with family, and so on. And maybe that means, you know, I don't publish the marginal paper that year, right? And am I making the wrong choice? And if women as a group, on average, are deciding that they want to publish less and do other things more, hypothetically, is that something that we should worry about?
1: Yeah. So that set of findings, right, the productivity findings in particular, that, that you know, sits with me <laughs> in a lot of ways, because it's not so much just that... Um, me as a scholar, that maybe I'm less productive. But I also worry about how that could play out for things like mentorship. And I expect we're going to be talking about that a little while. Um, But you know, so it doesn't just affect my own career. But you know, I think you're right that we may not want to be considering the level of productivity that we're seeing among top performing men as the bar we should all be aiming for, right? So there's an issue with, um, you know, I think in sociology, they call this quantification kinds of um, inequities that, you know, who has decided what the standards for meritorious are um, and what are we aiming for when we call somebody excellent, right? So it could be that publishing somewhat fewer papers, but really, Doing thoughtful work and um, being a good scholar in lots of other ways is really what matters. Um, you know, you two. When I heard you on the podcast talking about how not busy you are, though, I have to say I was shaking my fist at you because I do not. Ex- I don't experience that at all. Um, I thought you were angry with us because we let out a dark secret. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, during COVID, geez, uh, yeah, the the work home or whatever family balance is totally something that I think is uh, more impactful on a lot of women. That's by no means an, uh, you know a complete uh, dichotomy. Plenty of men are experiencing that kind of thing too, especially if they've got young kids at home. Um, but we're already seeing some data coming out um, from this from the pandemic time that women's productivity is really tanking. and men's in many cases is not showing that same kind of pattern. Right, So I think that that could actually be a little bit of kind of a microcosm of what we're seeing more generally in the field. I mean, I thought about all of the potential reasons that they identify, right? And to me, I do think that, you know, the institutional barriers and um, things that are tied to um parenting and um, childbearing and, you know, the work uh, life balance and all that kind of stuff. I think that actually does affect women on average differently from men. And I do think it probably ends up um, having implications for for productivity.
2: Right. Um, so I have a couple thoughts about uh, uh, this disparity as well. So the first is, you know, when We have a disparity. It's at least a question, right? It's like, okay, what, why, you know, why is it here? Um, and I think, you know, so you well, you suggested uh, well, one could just be, you know, uh, choices that people make, or and and and, you suggested well, they're not so much choices as they're kind of roles that are part and parcel of being a man and a woman um, <laughs> without our uh, consent necessarily. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, that's that, that that's another. Uh, uh, Possibility, but of course the other possi- the third possibility, the one that and and I, and I you know before reading the paper I, I thought they would have hinted at this much more strongly, but I think they were very fair and very even handed. But of course another possibility is that there's there is discrimination, right? So that um, you know a, a ma- a male scholars or maybe even female scholars tend not to respect uh, the scholarship of women as much, and uh, in other words, for equal amount of work, for equal quality of work. Men might still get uh, more highly cited, be be more visible um, relative to to a woman who's doing the you know the identical thing. That's one possibility as well. Again, they they don't don't really belabor that or even discuss it much because it's so hard to ferret that out. Um, But of course, that is a possibility. It just seems implausible
0: to me, given that all the other areas in which people can make a considered decision, like I'm thinking about to whom to give the grant, whom to hire, promotion decisions, if anything, uh, women are slightly favored, right? So that makes me think that where people can stop and think about it, there and I think this is good, obviously, there is an awareness of this stuff, right? Um, and I, I do think people are thinking about it. And if anything, that seems like it gives women a slight edge in those things. And I don't see why publication would be any different. Now, as a reviewer, you typically don't see who the author is, right? But of course, as the editor, you do. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if anything, if editors might be aware of, you know, being wary of implicit bias or something like that, and actually like be a little bit nicer if it's a female first author, like I I have zero evidence for that, but it doesn't seem crazy to me.
1: I mean, one way to think about that is that we can all, to some extent, to the extent that we're, you know attribution theorists, uh, folk attribution theorists, we can think about the things that could potentially be affecting um, women and men differently in the field, and then doing that little mental adjustment um, when we're evaluating their work. Um, You could think about doing that when you're evaluating somebody's CV. So we don't know what amount of variance might be accounted for in productivity that has to do with the barriers that women face or the discrimination that women face. But if you see a really excellent female scholar and they look slightly less productive or there are a couple of less invited keynotes or, you know, things like that compared to an also excellent male scholar, you might think, okay, well, at least a little bit of that variance may well be caused by this either explicit or implicit kinds of biases or other kinds of barriers, right? So I I do think that that's a possibility. I wonder if
2: there's another, uh, you know, I, I think it's still a subtle form of bias, um, maybe bias is not the right word, um, but what if there are you know different topic areas that you know men and women are slightly more or less attracted to, and those topic areas themselves are, for whatever reasons, less in the hub of psychology, and as a result, are um, less central, uh, less cited. And again, maybe that the slight you know uh, you know differences in preference might explain some of that as, as well. So just one example. Um, so, um, uh, people who study interpersonal relationships, uh, or, and now I know, I think pe- people refer to this as uh, relationship science, right? Um, this seems to be a, a, a sub-area of social psychology, uh, at least for, anecdotally, it seems like more women are interested in, in, in that area um, than men, and for I'm not exactly sure why, but imagine that area is not as highly cited cause for, for all kinds of different reasons, including, like, you know, uh, it could be, you know, a discrimination against, you know, uh, you know, the people who study those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also a possibility, even if, you, even if you take off that last bit about, you know, overt discrimination towards the topics, some topics maybe are more applied. And because they're more applied, they, they're less central, and, and, and it can be, you know, um, are invoked less in, in, in other kinds of more disparate areas. So that possibly could explain some of the disparities in citations
1: as well, maybe? Well, so I, I do think so, to some extent. So So, I mean, all of us, you know the term me-search, right? So, to some degree, our identities, our life experiences, maybe at least one of the places that we generate research interests, um and to the extent that that ends up informing people who are doing different kinds of research i mean i would say there are probably more women doing research that has to do with say gender issues in some cases um and i can say from personal experience that when i've tried to publish some of the work that i've done on those topics including you know i've got a a small line of research on body image issues and media sociocultural norms ideal appearance you know often I get back uh, feedback saying, "Ah, this is kind of a niche topic. You know, maybe you should send it to the journal that specializes in that. Um, And it's interesting, right? So what topics have we decided are niche and what are not? could very well be conditioned in part by who's doing that research and how eminent they are. Um, But I do think that that can be an issue potentially for women and also for um, underrepresented uh, minorities who are potentially also doing research on these kinds of areas that don't end up hitting mainstream journals in the same way.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. Uh, The counterexample that came to my mind was quant methods, which is like overwhelmingly male. And uh, they, they really don't get cited. Like, their good journals have these, like, just disastrous impact factors. Well, I mean, because it's quant methods, right? <laughs> who, who reads that stuff? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I guess I'm saying, like, I take your point, Anne, and I think that's totally true. I, I just, you know, net, I don't think it's a given necessarily that women would be drawn to, like, less well cited areas.
2: Well, I mean, I, I, a counterexample to that would be neuroscience, right? So neuroscience, I, I mean, at least it was, I'm not sure if it still is, but, you know, I, I would say an order of magnitude more cited than, you know, uh, non-neuroscience psych papers, at least in, in the past. Um, and it seemed like, and I think in the paper itself, they they, they said that uh, neuroscience or cognero was, was heavily male, mm-hmm. Um so that would be an example of just mathematically, you're going to have more citations because you've got more men interested in, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, but more men are interested in or push towards this one area that's you know, more impactful.
0: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. So I missed that part of the paper. And it's funny, like, when I'm like, top of mind, who are the like, young social neuro rock stars, I think of like Diana Tamir and Mina Sakara, and our own Sandri Hutcherson, right? So like a lot of women, actually, but that that's a problem with doing this stuff, like, by availability heuristic, like, that's, I'm probably miscalibrated there.
2: Um. I wonder if we can go back to uh, something you 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 mentioned, and and they discussed at at length, uh, which is the I forget what their category was. Was it uh, interpersonal or interpersonal? I forget now. Um, But this, you know, the basic fact of of uh, you know uh, uh, of you know being a woman means you're the one who who who, you know gives birth and has children, and by dint of that. and also, uh, you know, societally produce you're, you're expected to, and probably also want to take care of, uh, of the children more than men, and that seems to be, I'm not sure what to do with that, right? So this is this is this is a reality, the, the, uh, and I don't think it's a reality that anyone wants to change, um, but that is going to be uh, a, a, an opportunity. Costs, right? You know, the more you spend time with your kids, the more you spend time raising them, the just the less time you have for anything else. And again, because you're giving birth and you're also, you know, you're feeding your child uh, the first year or two of their lives, um, you know, you need to be there physically. So it, it just seems like that that's not something we can get over. So
1: w- what do we do with that? Yeah. So. There are lots of things could do with it, right? So one of them is really stop and think about the fact that a lot of careers are contingent on exactly that time frame, right? So um, from grad school to postdoc, postdoc often means moving one time, two times, unstable situations, um, and then all of the uncertainty about the job market and all that kind of stuff. All of those things are being managed by women. At the same time as they're deciding whether or not to take a plunge and have kids, um, depending, you know, all of the things that are related to that. Um, and, you know, of course, men have kids too, <laughs> but there is a difference here, right? And in, in all of how that kind of uh, dynamic ends up working out. Um, like for me, I, well, I didn't actually do a postdoc, but I was you know, I was ready to do one, um, if, if the job market hadn't worked out for me in that year. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a partner who was willing to move where I was, but there was no chance that I was going to have kids until I had a stable job. Because for me, especially growing up without a lot of money, the idea of having some kind of financial stability was really important. Um, and, uh, you know talking to a lot of women and this was you know 20 years ago now but talking to a lot of women in that situation then the decision was often to go for something less high profile or less um, you know the the publisher parish kind of situation or decide not to you know to to try over and over and over again if you if you had to do multiple postdocs um, and uh you know so i i think that that is a concern or the other decision was not to have kids um so i'll tell you one quick story so when i first got the job at laurier we were friends with a biology professor that uh, that was at university of waterloo she found out i got the job she called me she said first off congratulations on the job second when are you going to have kids um And I said, well, not now, eventually when I feel ready. And she said, don't wait till you feel ready because you're never going to feel ready because the next 10 years of your career is going to be one thing after another, after another. And her story was that she waited and waited and waited. And then by the time she tried to have kids, she couldn't. And she said that all of the women in her department were in that boat. So this was, again, a long time ago, but many of them, many of the women intended to have kids, and by the time they actually felt secure enough to do it, they couldn't, right? So, you know, I I think that that kind of decision weighs really heavily on a lot of women, Um, and a lot of it really has to do with the fact that, you know, especially as the job market gets more and more and more competitive, You're having to make these kinds of calls um, in a way that is often really impossible. So I've talked to a lot of young graduate students now who I think are really weighing those same kinds of options and saying, like, I don't want to spend the next five or six or seven years on a maybe um, when I could go into a job in industry or something else and have some kind of security and then move on with my life.
0: Yeah, so this is actually like uh, this perfect segue uh, to a paper that a listener sent me. Um, they have an unpronounceable Twitter name, so sorry, I'm not gonna try. It's it's literally not in like Latin characters. So anyway, though the. Paper is called Careers versus Children How Childcare Affects the Academic Tenure Track Gender Gap. And they look specifically at biological science PhDs, or I should say she, because this is uh, Stephanie D. Cheng's job market paper. So she says uh, she uses the largest nationally representative survey of US PhD recipients, looking at biosciences PhD in particular. Uh, I find no gender gap in tenure track rates among individuals who never have children and among individuals before they have children. Uh, But 9% of mothers temporarily leave the labor force after their first child is born. Those who remain reduce their working hours, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the the case among men, at least not as much. And she says, I conclude that short-term work reductions to focus on childcare, combined with a competitive profession requiring long hours, leads to long-term reductions in promotions, increasing the gender gap at the top levels of academia.
2: Just having mat leave, uh, parental leave options, or uh, uh, available daycare options, I don't think is going to solve this, um, because some some women are going to make I think a very wise decision for them to be like screw this. I want to have a career where I don't have to you know uh, you know work the crazy hours at least at first, um, and I'd rather spend time with my kids and, and not be in, in, in you know in yeah in, the, in this kind of environment. And I I think that's a that's a totally defensible thing to do, and I don't think. We should wring our hands for for for, for women who make that decision, um, but I suspect. So I suspect some of that is going into this this leaky pipeline. Well,
0: also, don't those um, policies sometimes backfire? Like, I, so I wish I could remember the site, and I just remember the stylized fact. But the idea is something like: uh, university implements a policy saying you get. X months of parental leave, let's say like six or 12 or whatever, they give it to both women and men. And women take the parental leave and take care of kids, and men take the parental leave and write papers, right? So you actually exacerbate the problem by giving everybody a leave.
1: Yeah, which can be a problem, but it's also definitely a good idea to try to incentivize men to take leave and you know one of the things that often happens i think when the the situation that you just mentioned you all happens is both people are off so when dad is taking time off and mom is also off then dad writes the papers uh, but in situations where mom goes back to work and dad is actually the primary caregiver, that does not happen. And then dad actually starts to develop more of a bond and realizes just how damn hard this job is, right? And, uh, you know, in countries that incentivize that e- effectively and sufficiently, and when I say sufficiently, it's often the case that men just don't do that because, um, from a salary perspective, it doesn't end up working out for them. So if they're the higher earner, then it makes a lot of sense sense for them to continue working. um, And that's often the case, not necessarily in academia, but in a lot of other kinds of careers. Um, But, you know, so it is, it's, it's a hard thing to try to figure out, but at the same time to try to say, well, you know, if, if women want to have a more balanced life and, you know, be able to uh, be with kids and stuff like that, so maybe they shouldn't be in academia, that doesn't really seem like the right choice either, because we have a very long career life. And we have this short window of time where we actually do want to have these more balanced priorities, or at least some of us do. And in some cases, that may be gender imbalanced, right? So for me, I wouldn't have wanted to give up any of my mat leave. Um, I was pretty comfortable, probably more comfortable than some women with things like, you know, I went into work and met with students, and I just breastfeed while I was doing it. And, you know, everybody was fine with that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's... The kind of thing that I think that um, we don't want to we don't want to say that you shouldn't be doing those kinds of things if that's what your choice is, um, but you know I think the real problem here is we've got this little. Window of time where you need to accomplish a lot to get a faculty job. And if you don't do it in that window of time and you have all of these kinds of metrics of uh, productivity and that sort of thing, then you're kind of out of that pathway. Um, and, you know, it may be that women would actually be, and I don't say maybe, I think that it's entirely true that women would be contributing just as much as scientists. And in some cases, they're self selecting out because they're not willing to do it in the way that's currently being. Accepted. Expected during that short window of time. Um, I did a little bit of looking too to see whether or not I could find any data on this. So there's one paper done with Economists, um, and they look at the time course for I I can send you the the link if you want it for your show notes. I can't remember right off. Um, But they look at the time course for women who have kids. um, And they find um, that women who have one kid, there's not a whole lot of productivity hit, if you have two kids, then it's about, it's like a 2.5 year hit on your productivity. So not all at once, but just in terms of like your overall, three kids is four years, right? So there's, there's a real hit. But uh, this paper, it came out maybe five years ago or something. And it made the the media headlines. Um, And the big headline was, Actually, it's great for your efficiency to have kids because when they look at the entire time course, they find that women who have kids were more productive prior to having kids and more productive after having kids. So when you balance it all out, the women who are still still there by the end actually are more productive than women who don't, right? And you can unpack that in all kinds of ways. That's a, there's a lot of problems in there um so first the women who are choosing to have kids are the most productive academically um and so what does that mean it could mean that women who are less productive are choosing not to have kids because they think it's going to be too big of a hit for their career right so that would be a really bad outcome um and then, of course, the women who are at the other end and still having, a, you know, still having a career after having kids, um, could be survivorship bias, you know. So just attrition effects. Um, who knows what that really means? Um, and it could also be, to some extent, a causal effect that you know, when you have kids, you learn to be incredibly efficient with your time because your time is so limited. So by the time your kids, your responsibilities at home start to actually subside. You're a powerhouse. <laughs> so I'm kind of hoping that's going to happen to me eventually. <laughs>
2: um well that's super interesting. So okay, I got one other one other uh uh thing I want to bring up and then I wonder if we should maybe uh uh you know refill our, our beers. Um so those not it wasn't very long in the paper, but they describe um the gender differences in willingness to compete and i i mean, I, I do feel they you know if there's one critique I have, I think they were trying to frame that a uh, you know, uh, a bit too much, as that's something that's learned, and I, and I think there 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 is some of that for sure. That definitely contributes to part of the variance. But there's so much cross cultural data that that men men like to compete. Um, the only exception to that is you know uh, that that men are equally as willing to compete with women um, in a stereotypically um, female domain. But if it's a neutral domain, men will compete. If it's a male domain, definitely men will compete. Um, and this. And this, I think it relates a little bit to another factoid in the paper, which is they talked about eminence and, and being a, what, what, what they would call public intellectual. Um, and they noted that um, only 25% of all Grey Matter articles, So Grey Matters is this kind of a column in the New York Times. A lot of psychologists have, have written, at least in the past, uh, uh, opinion pieces there. But only 25% of Grey matter, gray matter articles are penned by women. And to me, this seems ultimately about like, you know, uh, a willingness to, to put yourself out there and, and submit and, you know, unless there's really bias in, in who in, in the judgment, to me, it seems it's about like willingness to even put yourself out there. And I think it does relate to, again, you know, willingness to kind of compete. Um, and again, if there is this, let's assume there is this big difference. It's not just learned. It's, it, it's something about uh, being a man and being a woman. Um you know, how do you, again, how do you, how do you get over that? Um, That could explain a lot of, you know, uh, disparities in performance. Men get keyed up by this kind of thing. And they look at metrics and they game the metrics and they try to like, you know, beat their friends and pretend adversaries on on those metrics.
1: So this, this makes me think of um, Jordan Peterson. (laughs) Uh, you know, his talk, about the, the stuff that he um, talked about in that infamous um, pay gap uh, debate that he had. Um, but, you know, there, I think, and whether they are, whether they're learned or whether they are, you know, a more evolved or biological kind of thing, um, I don't know. It could be some of both Um, But to whatever extent there are typical gender differences in personality types, um, in dominance, in competitiveness, all of those kinds of things, you're going to get differences in how men and women behave. Um, So when you were talking before about citation rates... Well, things like, you know, penning the op-eds and self-promotion and doing oh a podcast and, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things are potentially things that are more likely to be done by people who are comfortable with that level of self-promotion, who are kind of trying to do um, competition. And to some extent, even if it's obviously not all or nothing, it could be that men are more likely to be doing those kinds of things. I was curious, actually. Do you know any data on gender and podcasting?
0: I was just counting oh, yeah, in yeah. my head. Um, oh, you know so them all. So you let's can see. Go. Black Goat is uh, – I was just thinking of psych podcasts. It's two-thirds women, obviously, more of a comment, half women. But then Andy Latrell's podcast, uh, Mike Sargent's, the two of us, obviously, Dave and Tamler, if you want to count them. So I think it probably is male biased. yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: Actually, I've heard this joke. It was like, what do you call a group of men? A podcast.
1: I mean, that's intuitively my sense is there is more podcasters that are men, more generally, maybe, you know, at least within the the domains that I pay attention to. Um, And they also have more guests that are men. So, and this isn't any kind of shade on you, just in general. Um, I think that there can be a bit of a (laughs) self-promotion. And, uh, you know, I think that that's also true when it comes to other kinds of self-promotion. I've been to a couple of workshops that are targeted specifically at women because women are less likely to do things like contribute to um, you know, media uh, interviews and that sort of thing to do op-eds. Um, and in many cases, journalists say it's not because they're not asking. It's because women are more likely to say, it's not my specific area of expertise, so I'm not going to speak on it. Um, so it may be one of those cases where women have a higher bar for what they consider to be an appropriate topic for them to talk about. Um, you could ask whether we should be more like men if that's the case, or if men should be more (laughs) a little bit more willing to question whether or not they're actually an expert on a topic, right? So, overconfidence is not necessarily something that we should all be striving for more of. Um, but you know, I do think that that can be, you know, another factor, and some of those things I think are. Well, I don't think we need to worry about whether there are, say, evolutionary differences or anything like that. If there are small differences, then fine. We just deal with those kinds of things. But I do think we can evaluate whether or not those are the kinds of factors that we should be incorporating right into our evaluations of merit, right? So the thing that bugged me about the arguments, say, that Jordan Peterson made about, um, about the wage gap, wasn't he saying, well, you know, men are more likely to be pushy and dominant and demand raises and all of this kind of stuff. And I was thinking, okay, so I thought these raises are supposed to be about merit. And if it's about personality, then that doesn't sound like it's about merit. So, you know, can we do a better job of of trying to calibrate those kinds of things so that we're not actually just over benefiting people who have a particular kind of personality style.
0: Yeah, I think that's totally right. Like, the, first, on the point of, like, do we really want to encourage women to be more like overconfident bloviators in the way that like <laughs> some men are? That doesn't strike me as like the right <laughs> answer. And, and the second is that, yeah, you know, like this lean in stuff about like, well, you know, women don't ask or whatever. Like, I think it's terrible that I've actually never been a professor at a US university. But like, from what I understand, in many places, you don't get a raise, unless you go get another offer. Right? That seems ridiculous to me. And like in Canada, at least a U of T, that's never been how it's worked, right? You get the kind of Merit raises and cost of living raises that everybody else gets according to some process that the like faculty association negotiates, and that's it. And I just feel like that's so much better. Why, why do you raise this that way? It just seems perverse. Yeah.
1: Well, and those are kinds of things that, like, if you're doing it seriously, if you're actually going out and getting another offer, a lot of women are going to be in situations where they may not be as movable right? And that's still, at least at a statistical level, the case that you're less likely to be able to move a spouse. So I do know, you know, some women who have taken that kind of lesson and they say, no, I'm going to keep getting those job offers so that I can try to negotiate for higher salaries, even if they have no intention at all of moving. And you know, then we're just doing a lot of game playing. So is that really a system that we want to be striving for and trying to encourage more of? Um, The other thing, I don't know if you've seen this, but the letters of reference uh, gender bias stuff that's sometimes talked about, right? So you can actually run your letters of reference through these little, like, apps or whatever to see how gendered the words are. And those kinds of things bug me to some extent, too, because it's basically demonizing words like kind and compassionate and a good mentor and, you know, all of these kinds of communal traits um, and the way I look at it, you know, absolutely, I want to make sure that if I have a female mentee that I'm writing a letter for, then I'm going to talk about her in as many um, positive, brilliant, uh, you know, innovator, discoveries—all of those kinds of words are going to get in there. But I'm not going to shy away from talking about the social skills and the mentorship skills and those kinds of things because I think we should be um, expecting those and rewarding those when they happen in both women and men.
2: Totally agree. So I, I think one, one, let's say, one summer summary here is we don't necessarily want. Um, Women to be more like men. We want fewer dicks in the world, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: I <laughs> concur. put in the work.
0: They wouldn't shake their heads and question how much of this I deserve. What I was wearing, if I was rude, could I be separated from my good ideas and power moves? And
2: they would toast to me, let the players play. Be just like Leo in Saint-Tropez I'm so sick of running as fast as I can Wondering if i get there quicker if I was a man And I'm so sick of them coming at me again Cause if I was a man
0: Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at four beers pod. Our DMS are open. Uh, so you can DM us or at message us there. If you'd rather email uh, four beers pod at gmail.com is the show's email address that will go to both of us as well. Finally, our website dot beers.com where you can listen to any of our episodes and uh, drop us a note there too. If you'd like, uh, if you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. We always enjoy those. I think a couple new ones popped up recently that I had a fun time reading. Uh, so yeah, please, if you like the show, keep those coming. It just helps other people discover us. Uh, Mickey, have I left anything out?
2: Uh, keep them coming. And uh, we, we like uh, reading your reviews. So please review us. Awesome. All right. What are we drinking? Well, I've got, I'm still on the uh, collective arts because I'm lazy. And it's like three blocks from my house. Um, this is uh, called IPA number 15. Of, you know, they have like a series of these. I I got number 15 now. A double IPA with uh, Citra, Citra and Simcoe hops. Another 8.2% monster. Uh,
1: so I have one that I've never tried before, which is a breakaway IPA. It's from... It's brewed in the Guelph Junction, Fixed Gear Brewing Co. So apparently they're all about beer and bikes. And oh, nice. Yeah, so good.
2: That sounds amazing.
0: Yeah, it's it's the beer that was like made for you, man. Totally, totally. And what about you, Yael? What do you oh, got? Oh, I uh, found another Stella in the fridge. <laughs> they're, they're responding now. <laughs>
2: Dude, it's like, as long as you feed the starter, it'll be better. Yeah, exactly.
0: The fishery had to be left alone for a while. They had to mature. <laughs> the baby Stellas had to grow into the full-size beers, and now I'm harvesting.
2: <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, so, you know, uh, kind of just one last possible implication uh, of this paper that we just discussed, and I think we all enjoy that paper. Um, you know, a savvy graduate student, you know, knows that it's really uh, uh, beneficial to them to work with someone who is a big shot, someone who gets lots of citations, uh, someone who publishes a lot. One implication that was not at all mentioned in uh, this perspectives paper is that it might be wise to find a male mentor uh, rather than a female mentor. Now, what do you what, what do you think about that implication? Enthusiastically <laughs>
0: endorse
2: because it advantages me. So, all for it, um,
0: and I assume you have no problem with this conclusion, either
1: yeah, yeah, go for it that 's just fine there 's absolutely no scandal <laughs> <at all here.
2: laughs> so of course i 'm referring to so the reason I, I asked this question is that there you know in the past week, um, there has been a, a controversial paper that that came out in Nature Communications that does a um a big data analysis of what they call mentorship i think we might more generously call it co-authorship and examining um you know uh, who ends up being more successful. Uh, you know if you are co-authored with a woman or a man, um, and you yourself had to be a, a man or a woman. And it's found that when when women mentees co-author a paper with a, a senior PI that's a woman, a woman, um, they uh, they suffer at least in terms of their productivity or citation rates afterwards. And this has led to uh, lots of hand wringing and even calls for retraction. So uh, you all did you uh, do you have any thoughts? On on the paper? I
0: I do. Um, So I'll just say uh, this paper is in Nature Communications. It's called The Association Between Early Career Informal Mentorship in Academic Collaborations and Junior Author Performance. And the authors are Badur Al Shebli, Kinga Makovi, and Talal Rowan. Those first two authors are women. That's not immediately obvious um, to Westerners. And I wonder, actually, I speculated about this on Twitter. I wonder how much of the outrage reaction might've been tempered if those names were like obviously read as women um, to English speakers, uh, because it's, I, I had no idea the uh, the gender of the authors until I, I looked them up. Um, so yeah, um, they wrote this paper. It actually mainly interestingly does not focus on gender at all. So it, it, it asks uh, they, they define informal mentorship as you publish with a more senior person at your institution Who's not your PhD advisor. So that's how it's defined operationally. Uh, And they have this big uh, data set of um, academic data called Microsoft Academic Graph. Um, This is something that's been out there for a little while that people have published on. So it's like um, huge, uh, I think like millions of entries, and goes back to like 1890 or something like that. Um, And what they were actually mainly interested in was does publishing is publishing with somebody who like has a high citation rate associated with later success for the junior uh, co-author? Um, is publishing with somebody who's like network central? So that's just a, like a term from like network graph theory about like you're uh, you have a lot of connections. Um, does that help you if you're the, the junior mentee publishing with somebody who has a lot of connections? And the answer to both of those questions is yes. Now this is all correlational, right? Um, they do, they, they do a propensity matching analysis, which basically says, okay, we're going to try and find some, uh, somebody who's uh, a mentee who is as comparable as possible to the like person of interest who matches them on all these characteristics, uh, but who varies in, uh, how many like eminent coauthors did they have? Um, that's, you know, I mean, it's it's a way of like trying to draw some causal conclusions from correlational data, but it's basically more or less the same as like controlling for those characteristics of the... Um, of the junior people in a regression, right? So their, their results are to me kind of unsurprising. It's, you know, yeah, it's good for you to publish with people who've been cited more, and it's good for you to publish with people who know lots of other people. And then they sort of throw in at the end, and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, we also did this exploratory analysis of gender, um, which is they look at the proportion of uh, men and women co-authors um, that qualify for this mentorship role. So remember, those are co-authors who are senior uh, to the uh, person, not their PhD advisor, at the same institution. Um, and they say, okay, um, in this analysis, having a higher proportion female co-authors, or they would say female mentors, is associated with then lower performance of the mentee in the future, like post-collaboration. Um, they do The way that they do this analysis controls actually for the for the senior co-author's citation rates. So it's not just that they're um, collaborating with women who are less cited, and that's driving it, because they do hold that constant. Um, one thing that's not held constant, as far as I could tell in this analysis, is any of the mentee characteristics, really. So they don't do the matching here at all. Um, so as far as I can tell, uh, you know, I, I, I did read it pretty carefully. Um, if I missed that, uh, sorry, but as far as I can tell, they don't uh, do this kind of a more in-depth matching to try and control for these mentee characteristics um, for the gender analysis. Uh, and then they have, you know, for the most part, they say stuff like association, right? But they have some causal-ish language in, uh, in the discussion. And they have some like, in my opinion, kind of unwise and premature policy recommendations of like, maybe we shouldn't encourage women to work with, with uh, women mentors. Um, that like really enraged people, um, and now people are calling for the retraction of this paper. I think on the basis of just that it overclaims or comes to conclusions that they don't like right, they're like, well, you know they're they're making these unwarranted causal claims based on correlational data. Also, it's harmful, therefore it should be retracted. So I hope that's a
2: fair summary. I'll let you guys jump in at this point. Did they, I mean, I, I thought another one of the major critiques was a, a question of measurement, right? So um, to what extent, uh, well, number a, a, to what extent is this actually mentorship? This is this is not, we don't know what this is. Um, we just know they're on a paper together. Um, but I thought the other one was, uh, you know, they, to some extent one could read the paper as, you know, a successful mentorship is one where you end up having more citations yourself and that might not be a good measure of a successful mentorship. I mean, it's one one outcome, of course, um, but it's one of many. I thought that was also a a, a problem for, for yeah, some people. Yeah. You
0: know, to be honest, I find neither of those critiques particularly convincing. Um, they So they do argue for this definition of mentorship in the introduction. It's very clear what they're actually measuring. Um, and they do have some sanity checks, right? So they emailed some of these junior people um, and they got responses back from, I want to say, like 10%. So I think they have like a couple hundred. And they just asked them, hey, about these like senior co-authors, people that like buy hypothesis or mentors to them, you know, did they do mentorish stuff for you? Did you ask them for advice? Did they write you letters, et cetera, et cetera? And it's like, well, yeah, for the most part, yes. Right? So to me, that kind of validates their, um, their treatment of this as, as mentorship. But okay, if you don't like that, it's very clear in the paper what they're actually measuring. So then we're just arguing about words. And like, to me, I don't like their definition is not a reason to retract a paper. And then by the same token, yeah, you know, maybe mentorship has these other great outcomes, you know, like uh, there's some data showing that like when women have women mentors, they're more likely to stay in the field, for example. It's like, yeah, that's, that is a different thing um, that you could be interested in. And it's very clear what these people are interested in, right? It's citation rates. And yeah, like I don't, particularly love the idea of maximizing citation rates as like, this is the be all end all of like what we should be aiming for. But again, you know, they put it right in the paper, right? So there's no, they're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. It's like, it's like right there for the reader to see. So as, you know, writing a comment saying, well, mentorship actually is these other things is fine saying it should be retracted because I disagree with their definition seems to me specious, but I've been talking a lot, so um, maybe Anne would like to to make, forcefully state the case for retracting this paper, and furthermore banning these authors from ever publishing anything again.
1: <laughs> so you might not know, but I'm I'm generally pretty fundamentalist on my free speech support, and this is not exactly a case of free speech, but free inquiry in general. Um, I think that retraction should be something that's you know, a possibility for a paper that is actually just, you know, not doing what it's claimed to have done. If there are major flaws in it, then I think that there are cases where that's appropriate. It's not clear to me from having done a a skim of this paper. I admit I haven't read it closely enough to be able to say whether there are any serious flaws, but, you know, is this a case where we should be looking at retraction? Um, you know, I think that there are some serious concerns with the paper, um, including the ones that you've highlighted. But so, and Yoel, maybe you can answer this. So did they, uh, what was the temporal uh, focus of the paper? The- site of the, like how many, how many years were they looking at? I think it was a quite a long time span, right? For the The
0: data set starts in 1890. Right. Yeah. And that's something that I thought was super weird is they don't talk about time trends at all. Right. So why are you assuming this is temporally invariant? That makes no sense to me. Yeah.
1: So I actually went to the supplementals thinking maybe they're going to do this. And they did one temporal analysis looking at the big shot kind of question. And they didn't do a single thing looking at temporal the temporal dimension of any kind of gender effect, right? And I would certainly expect that you might, ex- might see some sort of a gender um, effect over time. So that seems to be really unaccounted for. The fact that they're looking at multiple disciplines. Now, I know that they have, I think, discipline in as a as a covariate or something like that. Um, But disciplines tend to be very gendered to some degree. And some of the disciplines, so including things like physics and natural sciences, um, I looked it up, they tend to be most highly cited. So if you have male heavy disciplines that are most highly cited, so you know, those kinds of things. Um, Clearly, I, I think that there's a question with how they define mentorship and at least maybe one or two paragraphs where they do a little bit too much, um, with causal language, right. Causality. Um, but you know, other than that, if the data is telling us what the data is telling us, then I think that it's worth having that out there because it's probably the kind of thing that could trigger a useful kind of conversation. when you think about it in relation to the paper that we just finished talking about, um, productivity and uh, citation rates, you know, it really parallels that quite nicely um, in ways that doesn't make it all that surprising that you might find gender effects if the way that you're going to define that kind of merit or that kind of success is purely based on something like citations, right? So we don't know why those citations are different, but it certainly is a potential effect of that. So if that's a factual thing, right, if there's not an actual problem in what they found that way then it's worth having that as something that we can interrogate and discuss further. And there's a data set that, from what I understand, is publicly available, so people can go in and dig into it a lot further and really try to understand what's going on here.
0: Yeah, that's right. So um, I should say that one other complaint that people had is that they are uh, are deducing the gender of the mentors algorithmically. So, you know, that's imperfect. Um, I don't see how it would create a spurious result. Um, It would probably just make their analyses noisier. But yeah, so if you're like, okay, actionable advice, you know, should you work with Ann Wilson, like, or maybe should you worry that you're gonna be disadvantaged by the fact that you're publishing with a woman as a psychology graduate student in twenty twenty, it's like this doesn't really give you any useful information to answer that question, right? So they're collapsing across like basically every discipline and across more than a hundred years. And they're like, This is the average effect. And let, let let's say we take that seriously as a causal effect that still doesn't tell us much as like, you know, what should we do? Now, in this specific case. So, yeah, I mean, I do I I wonder whether they <laughs> should have just left this part out because it seems a little half baked, honestly. And obviously it enraged people. But I also see the argument for like, well, okay, like half baked as it is, this is maybe something that we now want to follow up on, right? And they do they they did post the data set, although not weirdly not their inferred categorizations of people as men or women, and I don't know why not. Um, Maybe that was... I can't imagine it was proprietary. They use some public API. I don't really know. But anyway, most of the data are there, and people can mess around
2: with them if they want. I think think for that reason alone, just having the data out there is a huge, huge service. So I, I didn't, you know, Ivan read the paper, and uh, I did not realize that they didn't do any temporal analysis whatsoever. I mean, it really does change the meaning of it, right? I mean, sure, I believe it. In, 18, in 1890, I believe this effect, and I believe it's, it's also purely discrimination, um, like a bias, uh, a sexist, you know, bias. Um, but what about today? Um, and it would be really interesting to see if these trends held in the past 20 years. And then if so, that would also be really interesting to understand why. Um, and yeah, I mean, to me, the, the 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 calls for retraction are, I don't know how to respond to them other than people don't like the conclusions that, you know, these authors from Abu Dhabi, you know, drew. Um, I don't. And I'm not sure that's a, a a legitimate basis for a demand for retraction. You don't like the conclusion. Unless the conclusion is so so far fetched from the data. But even then, even then. Um I, yeah, retraction I think should be for, for fraud, for, for outright mistakes. Um but this there seems to be lots of value here. Um so yeah, it seems it seems odd, and it also seems odd that very few people, at least online, at least in the, in, you know, in, in, in the, 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 the couple of days when this, this controversy first started brewing, only a couple people kind of said something about this. And those couple of people weren't in psychology, Um that was a bit uh, uh, dismaying to me. Uh, again, I, I think I mentioned them every single episode, YOEL. But like uh, more of a comment than a question, they did a whole episode on this, and these two young graduate students, so brave, um, to talk about this and not not being afraid about you know what, what will follow. And I think they 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 met, they, had the, they were they're on the right side here. I believe. Yes,
0: Mickey, you're making me insecure. I'm afraid that you're going to leave me for them.
2: <laughs> I can see it
0: happening. It's it's happening, it's-
2: dude. I'm just they, they promised me to be a guest on their show, oh, and until I'm actually on, I'm just going to mention them every single episode. Okay,
0: like. good. Well, uh, <laughs> you're really. I feel like I'm the one who's being punished here, but but fine. Um, yeah. So I mean, this is kind of an ironic little wrinkle, right? So uh, as you said, uh, these authors are all at uh, NYU Abu Dhabi. Um, I believe the first author is Kuwaiti, uh, judging by her where she went to undergrad. Second author is, I think, Turkish. Um, So, you know, I mean, you want a kind of more uh, diverse international set of contributors to behavioral science. They may not all share your cultural sensitivities. They might not all put things exactly the way you upper middle class North American might have put them. And that's just kind of like, well, that's part of the deal, though, right? You wanted diversity, didn't you? Here you go.
1: Mm-hmm. So I have a question for both of you. There was a line in the paper, so and I think this was part of what really caused the outro- uproar, um, that said something like, in the current context of you know promoting women in science, there's a real push to have female-female mentorship, right? And I think that this is something that we do sometimes see in at least public discourse, that it's important to have diversity in part because we need to have mentors who look like you, who are like you. So what's your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's actually something that is important from a psychological perspective? Um, or is that really is that really a mechanism that we need to be paying attention to? Uh, Mickey, I'll
0: throw this to you first.
2: um that's kind of it's a really really good question uh i have a couple of thoughts first i think it it would be it's i think there's a positive to it right i mean just if you do share some background characteristics with your mentee i think i think that does you know uh grease the wheels a bit and makes things a bit easier and you have to explain everything to them but i think that can go a bit too far um, I, I UL uh, and I were both part of a town hall recently, where um, one of our esteemed colleagues suggested that, you know, um, for example, a person of color could not receive good mentorship from from a white person. Um, and I, I kind of took exception to that I know others others in our department did as well. Um you know, so in other words, I think it's really good to have that you know uh, uh, those shared characteristics, but I don't think it's required for you know positive mentorship. But I think what you're asking is because one implication that they make is actually, um, given the, the 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 you know uh, the influence networks out there, it might actually be a negative. Um, I think that's what you're you're you're, you're trying well, to get they're, at. I think they're they're sort of setting um,
1: it up, right, rhetorically. So they're saying, "Well, there's this push towards same gender mentorship, or similarly, you know, same ethnicity, same you know the 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 identity characteristics are important to have matched." Um, and they were suggesting, in kind of a contrarian way, that perhaps to the extent that that is being recommended, it's not the right recommendation. Um, I don't think that their data would suggest that it's the wrong recommendation, but I do think that it's a valid question to ask in the first place. Should we be really emphasizing matched mentorships? Is there some kind of extra value to that? Um, So from my personal experience, I mean, most of my key mentors were men. Um, And I'd say that what was most important to me, though, in terms of gender and role models was seeing successful women in my field. Right. So somebody like Ziva Kunda being just an amazing powerhouse um, and the kind of person that she was in my department, she was not my primary mentor, uh, but it was important to see people like that there right? But in terms of the kinds of relationships you can build, I certainly wouldn't suggest that I have a different relationship in any meaningful way with male and female mentees. Um, And I would hope that most men also would not, right? In in the sense of like, what can you actually give your mentee and what kind of relationship can you build? So I think that that's something that we should probably be questioning a little bit if that's an assumption. Um, They just sort of set it up that way though. So I don't know for sure if that's truly what people are recommending or if it's more just you know, that it's important to have this kind of diversity so people see um, people like them represented.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that there's so um, SJDM, the uh, Society for Judgment and Decision Making, they have like a women's lunch, which is kind of expanded to just be this general mentorship thing, but I think at least started. With this idea of like, you know, it would be good for women to hear from other women about how to succeed. But, you know, to be honest, the feedback that I heard from people is that it's, that it's sort of mixed in terms of, like, sometimes a woman would get up there and say something just totally crazy, like, you shouldn't be having children before tenure, right? And it, so it, I find it, to be honest, a little reductive. I mean, um, I, I can understand that there are some things that it's easier to talk to some Buddy about if, if they're like you on this identity characteristic but also like man if you're talking about half the world's population that's a very varied group right and so to make these broad claims about like oh it's always better to whatever um strikes me as like pretty likely to be to be wrong yeah um so yeah i'm i'm sort of waffling i'm afraid i'm like maybe i can see some upside i don't know i guess in the end it's an empirical question right like you can does it do? Do these people do better? Do they stay in the field? Do they publish more? Are they happier? They've had same gender mentors. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, whenever I, I certainly have a lot of female grad students who ask me questions that are somewhat gendered. Sometimes, sometimes it has to do with family and kids and stuff like that. You know, and I always start with basically, this is just my experience. This isn't the experience of women, right? Because I'm not a category. I'm a person, and I think that. That is true, but, you know, to the extent that you can get mentorship from a variety of people, I think that's good. If all of your mentors have had the exact same experience, whatever that experience is, then you're definitely going to be limited in what you can gain from them. Yeah,
2: to- totally agree. Mickey, as,
0: as a Jew, did you feel you were hindered by being mentored by a non-Jew?
2: Uh, how do you know I was mentored by a I'm non-Jew? I'm just guessing. Am I wrong? <laughs> Well, base rates is so many Jewish academics. <laughs> that's true. My mentor was, in fact, Jewish. In fact, my my grad my grad school mentor and my postdoc mentor were both Jews. Um, so, homophily uh, for the win. You know what? That's true of me too.
0: <laughs> 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 too many Jews. That's the
2: conclusion. Way too, too many. many Jews. I think. I think that, that's definitely yes. a conclusion. Maybe we should shift gears uh, and talk about our final paper. Um, So this is a paper uh, called, uh, uh, you know, question mark, Discrimination Widespread, Uh, Testing Assumptions About Bias on a University Campus. It's authored by Mitchell Campbell and Marcus Brower, both at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, I mean... I'm not exactly sure how we brought these, these two papers together, other than they're speaking of bias, you know, in a university context. Uh, but this one caught my eye, um, and I think it was definitely worth a read, because it proposed a an hypothesis that I, I, well, never really heard of before. Um, and the, the authors, what they're, what they're doing at the outset is they're putting, they're putting together two kind of versions of discri- modern discrimination, so um, you know, uh, one version of this discrimination is what they what the authors called a dispersed discrimination account, and that's the idea that um, everyone is more or less subtly, implicitly biased, and but you know uh, the, the, these biases are small. There maybe we might, might even call them microaggressions, but everyone holds them, and you, you can you can see that in behavior if you were to look at a behavior objectively, uh, and they pit that against what they call. The Concentrated Discrimination Account, which is a very different account. And and that account is that no, um, it's not that most people are biased or racist. Uh, Most people, in fact, at least in a university context, um, are in fact egalitarian. And in fact, have uh, you know even progressive values, and it's really just a small minority of people who uh, who are committing acts of discrimination and prejudice. So they kind of um, allude a little bit to uh, the Pareto Law or the eighty twenty law, or to the twenty eighty law. Um, this notion that um, a small number of people, say twenty percent of people, are committing eighty percent of acts of prejudice. Um, and in the paper, they really you can think of this paper as, you know, two halves. The first half is a lot of um, survey methodology where they ask people um, how comfortable they are on campus and they compare, you know, the responses to, um, you know, dominant groups, let's say white groups and, and, and people of color. Um and then they uh, then they actually conduct something that hasn't, you know, really is hardly ever done anymore in social psychology, which are field studies where they actually have confederates go out in the field and, and kind of observe people as they're acting and observing, you know, are you sitting next to me in the bus? Are you picking up my, you know, the cards that I've dropped in an elevator? Um are you holding the door for me? That kind of thing. And examining whether those acts of kindness or charity or helping people uh, is affected, uh, is is impacted by the race or the religious orientation or the sexual orientation of the person who has, you know, had this thing happen to them. Um, and, uh, you know, again, you know, get to the the bottom line, what they find is support for this, what they call, again, the concentrated discrimination account, this idea that, uh, again, based on their methodology, it's not so much that it's widespread, but it's a small number of people who are potentially not sitting next to the Muslim or black person on the bus, not helping the, the, the you know, the black person who needs help, uh, etc. But most people actually do help and are nice and are egalitarian, um, at least on campus. So uh, that's kind of my very quick summary. Um, but uh, what are what are your so, thoughts? So uh, overall,
0: uh, I like this paper a lot. I liked their kind of upfrontness about yeah. Initially, these field studies where we were trying to pilot situations in which people were discriminated, and we just couldn't get them to. It's like way to spin that straw into gold. Um, I do have a problem with. Um, one kind of subset of these field studies, which is they have three different uh, wait sorry four different kinds of marginalized targets. Uh, those are uh, black people, uh, gay people, Asians, and Muslim women. And and they uh, they signal that the woman is Muslim by having her wear a headscarf. Um, and it seems like one of their strongest results is actually the bus seating study, which they only have, I think, Muslim women. And the way it's set up is uh, they seat a Muslim woman and a non-Muslim woman in the like kind of uh, window seats by like right by where you get on the bus. And this is like a bus that runs around campus, like a campus shuttle. And they see like, well, do, do people like preferentially sit next to the non-Muslim woman? Um, does this seat next to the Muslim woman stay empty for longer? And so on and so forth. Um, and another one of the studies with Muslim women involves interaction as well in that she, like, drops some cards and she's like, oh, darn, in an elevator um, where there's other people present. This, these are all confederates, obviously, and these are the same confederates, like, wearing a headscarf or not. Um, and, and then they see whether people help to pick them up. And here's my thing. And, and maybe I'm a bigot, though. It's like I'm leery of interacting with observant Muslim women because I'm afraid that they might, like, not be cool with being around a man. You know, so I I know... Some observant Jews won't like sit next to. Remember, there was this thing where this dude, this this Hasidic Jew, demanded to be reseated on a plane because there was a woman next to him. And so I'm like, am I making them uncomfortable? Right. So I definitely, you know, we we actually have quite a few um, uh, women who wear hijab uh, at UTSC. And back in pre-COVID times, like when I saw students in person, I would be careful not to ever touch them to stay further away from them because I didn't want to make them uncomfortable and so I definitely I definitely would not have sat next to a, a Muslim woman um, if there was another seat available, for example and maybe I even would have been reluctant to I think if she like dropped something I would help her pick it up but like anything where they, they might be touching me, I'm kind of like really sensitive about that and, and want to avoid that. Is that am I crazy? Am I
1: overthinking? No I, I looked for gender data to see whether or not they looked at that exact thing I was wondering about that too Um, I think that that's a plausible hypothesis especially for the bus seating one right Um, but given that they're finding these kinds of things across a number of different scenarios and domains it may be that if you take them as a whole then that doesn't matter as much uh, the other thing about the seating one, at least. So, I have a paper from a number of years ago called Birds of a Feather, something, something, something. So, a homophily is a very generic kind of tendency, right? So, we actually find with, I have a paper with Christian um, Jordan, who's a colleague of mine, um, and Sean McKinnon. And we find that people are less likely just to kind of randomly sit next to someone, like on a bus, in a computer lab, whatever, if you're wearing glasses and they're wearing glasses. Or if you have short hair and they have short hair. And at least one of the mechanisms is this uh, tendency to think that people who are like you are going to like you more. So to the extent that you feel like you're going to be liked and welcomed and accepted, you're going to sit next to someone. Um, And it's possible that that kind of meta uh, expectation could be part of what's going on in some of those studies, too.
0: Wow, and they really should have cited you. It's probably because you're a woman that they chose not to. It's got to be it, <laughs> definitely.
2: But okay, hold on. So these are all these, these are great comments. But I mean, for, in my mind, the the, the, the take home of, of this paper was how remarkably seldom they actually saw, you know, the kinds of behaviors you guys are are describing. Right so it wasn't the case I mean actually the 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 sitting next to the muslim woman was the only scenario of all of them where there was actually a significant difference um but the rest there the, there was very little evidence of you know you know not helping or not sitting or you know uh, you know someone based on their race or gender gender or not gender sorry race uh, religion or sexual orientation right so I mean, if if anything, what you're saying, you'd expect more of the kinds of, you know, what might look like discrimination was actually just, you know, respecting the the person, what you think is the person's wishes.
1: That's really the take-home message from this paper, right? When they talked about, there was that one really just golden paragraph where they were talking about how they had actually done all of these studies, the behavioral studies as pretests to use for this other paper where they were going to be able to um, manipulate these differences. That made me think, so much of the the Milgram studies, right, where the claim there was that, well, we're just looking to kind of, you know, figure out where these kinds of, um, right, yeah, so so the, the Milgram study, and then, you know, they're looking to find this kind of this method, and then they could use it on people who would really show this tendency. And uh, so it's kind of a flip of that case here, right? So they're looking for something that would be sensitive to discrimination, and then they couldn't really find it. Um, You know, I think that there's something worth really recognizing in that, that, you know, in many cases, at least in the kinds of contexts that they're looking at, and it's important to recognize that it is, you know, on a university campus, uh, there's often quite a lot of inclusive behavior and not that much discrimination, at least in the kinds of ways that they were measuring it. So you could ask, are they measuring it the right way? Um, I thought a little bit about those kinds of behavioral studies. Like, is it is it LaPierre, the classic study of the, you know, so people said that they would discriminate, but then they wouldn't actually discriminate against uh Um, was it an Asian, a Chinese uh, couple that came in and wanted to, right, and and wanted to get a room in a hotel, right? So it could be that there are these social norms that are uh, restricting the amount of discrimination that they're seeing. But some of these kinds of measures were pretty subtle. And, uh, you know, I think that there's something really meaningful about the fact that the kinds of day to day experiences are ha- people are having are not necessarily full of this kind of discrimination on the basis of these kinds of metrics.
2: Yeah. So the other, you know, so the uh, the other part of the paper that I, you know, it's less exciting than the field studies, but I think still illuminating. Um, and that was the, the, you know, the 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 survey data where they asked. You know white students and, and and students of color about their experiences on campus, and you know right off the bat, for sure, there are differences so you know the students of color feel they do feel less welcome they do feel that they're not as supported, so that's that's not great but if you actually look at their actual like their their absolute ratings. Both groups are very satisfied. Both groups seem to think that the environment is quite inclusive. Um, Both groups seem to feel welcome. Um, And to me, at least, especially now, uh, and it's kind of interesting because this this, this paper was published recently, but clearly was, you know, people, they've been working on this for a couple of years, well before the current moment. Um, But in the current moment, we have this idea of, you know, we're all racists. You know, all our systems are deeply, you know, um, favoring white people and they're discriminatory against anyone who's not white. Um, And this, I think, really acts as a bulwark against that. Uh, uh, The data does. I mean, you know, uh, you know. Uh, you know you guys talk about this golden paragraph of you know kind of trying to find the, the 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 cases where the you know it would be obvious where discrimination happens what i what i highlighted was the first few paragraphs of the discussion where they were, they were bending over backwards to say we're not trying to say that prejudice doesn't exist we're not trying to say we're not trying to you know minimize the impact of discrimination so clearly these these two authors are aware of how this can be perceived um but nonetheless, um, one can't help but think at the contrast of these results with the current kind of zeitgeist of like, we're, everything's fucked, everything is rotten, and we got to burn things to the ground. Like, well, if you ask, if you actually ask people, they're like, no, things are good. I'm happy. Um, th- you know, I feel I feel like I belong. I feel like um, most people are not racist. Uh, so I, 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 you know... That's kind of jarring. The, the 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 conflict between you know again what we are currently talking about and what people uh, you know on the ground are experiencing.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I I was about to say they have, they have the benefit of arguing against something that like you know I I might have called a straw man if it weren't the case that university administrations were like explicitly promoting this line. But it's kind of like, well, yeah, duh, like, universities, particularly, like, these kind of more selective elite institutions, they're pretty openly dedicated to fostering, like, a tolerant, inclusive environment, which is great. Um, And therefore, you shouldn't expect them to be, like, hotbeds of overt, you know, bigotry. Um, So, like... This seems sort of sensible, right? Like, yeah, there's a small minority of people who are going to be jerks and who are going to discriminate in different ways. And that's bad. But most people are probably like, you know, on on the right side here, um, at least to some degree. And are like, yeah, you know, I care about this stuff. I want to treat people equally. Um, I'm not going to discriminate. And so like, yeah, you know, this university campus is pretty unusual environment, right? This isn't like a randomly selected group of Americans at all.
1: But some of the data that they talk about suggests that, you know, if you're looking at more randomly selected groups of Americans, they're also saying that this isn't part of their experience on a day-to-day basis, right? So there are differences in how um, how people experience things and how our current rhetorical frame may be um, talking about them. So I think this is this is a tricky topic to navigate. Um, and it's probably an especially tricky topic to navigate among three people who are all basically white. Um, but...
2: Don't call me white, okay, please. Okay.
1: Microaggression. <laughs> <No>. and <laughs> That's why I said basically, all right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it's, I, I think that this is something that is... Um, that's worth really asking about it in the current context, how we're talking about these kinds of issues on campuses. Um, And I've noticed a number of cases where this sort of thing has been the way that it's talked about in, in recent campus discussions and that sort of thing. There's a real um, tendency to frame things in terms of like, we're just a deeply racist place, you know, we're, um, we're, stuck in this white supremacist uh, logic and um, the institutions that we're, we're based on are all racist. And in many cases, there's something true about that, but it's not well defined to people. Right. So if you're using these kinds of terminologies and you're a social scientist, you might understand that when you're talking about something like institutional racism or uh, like systemic factors, you're talking about uh, a deep history. You're talking about a number of ways in which intergenerational transmission of uh, inequalities continue to get perpetuated over time and that sort of thing. But when you're talking about that with students who don't have all of that history, or with people more generally who don't ha- have all of that history and knowledge, then they're just hearing everybody's racist. And it's not clear that that's completely accurate or that it's particularly beneficial for any kind of discussion, including a discussion about how to how to fight racism. Um, so I don't know if either of you took a look at this but because they talked about how they were pre-testing uh for a different set of studies i kind of went back and looked at some of the other publications um and so marar campbell and brower have this nature human behavior paper did you did you see that one so can i tell you about it just for a minute because i was really excited about it it's, it's, it's definitely basically just like the the pair to this paper right so to the extent that you're seeing this paper as an argument that, you know, maybe um, campuses are not pervasively racist places, but that, yes, there are a small number of discriminatory people. Um, And I think, like, the numbers that they have are something like 8% overtly biased and maybe about 12% subtly biased, right? So we're talking about about 20% of people. Um, So in this other paper, they basically do like a standard um, norms intervention where they tell people on campus in one condition that, you know what, 80 to 90% of people on campus are really cool with inclusion and diversity. Um, They're anti-discrimination. So they basically take these kinds of data and they use them in an intervention. Um, And in several of the studies, I think they've got six studies in this paper, but in several of the studies, they do two things. So first, they say the norm on campus is that inclusion and um, appreciation for diversity and anti-discrimination, this is the norm, right? This is what most people do. However, there still is some discrimination and that is unacceptable and it is inconsistent with our values right so you're not just wiping it away you're not pretending it doesn't exist and that's important too so you put those two things together and then you put it out on campus Um, and it turns out at least on the basis of the data that they've collected which is you know on, on a pretty good number of people Um, some of the studies that they do are over months so it's not all at the same time it's actually looking at outcomes over months that both um white students as well as students from a number of underrepresented minority groups um feel like there's more of a culture of inclusion on campus when you get this norm that you know most people are actually inclusive most people are not actually racist um and in the last study that they did, they actually look at how this might affect the um, the performance gap for minority students. And they find that students who are exposed to this kind of messaging actually do better. So the performance gap in grades disappears for the students who are exposed to this kind of message as opposed to this, this other message. Um, so, you know, I think that there's something real to this. And to the extent that we want to be endorsing this kind of descriptive norm saying that these are the kinds of values that are really common, you know, I think that we we recognize that and we do it in a lot of other domains as social scientists. We recognize that that's kind of just a basic principle of how we talk about norms and that sort of thing. Uh, but it tends not to happen when we're talking about racism. We sort of turn that on its head when we're talking about racism and prejudice and talk about how it's all pervasive and it's everywhere. And I think that that might actually play a role in like making people who are um, already underrepresented Feel even more unwelcome in places that are actually mostly wel- welcoming.
0: Yeah, I, that's great. Um, I had missed that paper, but I'm going to go back and check it out. I mean, it's it it's I think to me an illustration of the extent to which kind of the dialogue around race and racism, particularly for liberal white people, just kind of turns off their brains. That it it doesn't strike any reasonable person is surprising that if you're like hello black 18 year old welcome to university of wisconsin you will note that our campus is a racist hellscape. good luck (laughs) you know i mean like what kind of message is that is that going to make somebody feel comfortable and included it's it's terrible and i just feel like it makes us do stupid things and people need to think about this stuff in like a little bit of a less religious way and a little bit more of a reasonable way.
1: And it's so hard to do because there's another reason you want to think that, right? So as somebody who's part of the perpetrator group, we of course want to diminish the degree to which we feel responsible and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So you can call it white fragility, call it whatever you want. Um, but to the extent that we feel defensive, we may also want to minimize the degree to which these kinds of things are happening, right? So, and you could also argue, of course, that, you know, 10, 20% of people being discriminatory is more than enough. So, you know, that's not necessarily a good result. Um, but, you know, one of the things they found actually in the second paper was that when it was framed in that way, people who heard the message that, you know, the norm is inclusivity as opposed to the norm is racism, were more likely to push back against the instances of discrimination that they did see, right? So there was a more of a, a culture of inclusion that included people just not accepting when they saw that kind of behavior, right? So there's something like really, I think, just sort of very basic about that. Um, I teach an applied social psychology course. So I talk a lot about injunctive and descriptive norms. And that's just like one of those basic findings, right? That if you have a descriptive norm that lots of people are doing something, well, when you say lots of people are doing something bad, right? Lots of people are littering. That's terrible. Lots of people are littering. Don't litter. Well, it turns out that people litter more. (laughs) <laughs> because they're like, well, most people are littering. Why shouldn't I litter? It's not gonna make any difference if I litter. Littering must be pretty normal. Right. So, you know, that's something that we we recognize in all kinds of other domains, but not in this domain.
0: Right. Right. Now, this this intervening aspect I think is really interesting because I was thinking about, yeah, okay. So like let's say you set a descriptive norm that racism is really common. Or like I can't see myself being like, oh, everybody else is being racist. I guess now I get to, right? Like I and I Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't feel like there's many people in that boat. But if you're talking about intervening and you give people the impression of like, oh, this stuff is just so common, then maybe you're like, why bother? But if you're like, this stuff is really rare and egregious, then they're like, I'm going to say something if somebody acts that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I think you're you're absolutely right that um, right now it seems like hard to argue against this mentality, but I I do think that these things are cyclical and they swing back and forth. And to some extent, we're just going to like start confronting the empirical reality in a lot of ways um, in the U S electorally, where it's become evident what a loser this kind of message is. Right. So like, I, you know, Mickey, you'll probably cut this out, but like, I've, I've been obsessed with the 2020 election and particularly with Trump's overperformance relative to 2016 in, well, first of all, uh, you know, South Florida, which is okay. Mostly Cubans. That's not that surprising, but then also in like Texas border counties, right? And it's like, yeah, it turns out that there's a lot of Latinos who resent being told that they're like hapless victims and they don't see themselves that way right so i i think that this message like that has become part of this like almost religious ritual that like honestly i mainly see a certain kind of white person do like do the people who are the supposed beneficiaries of that actually even want it like most of them i would guess not i would guess that they sort of they're like either uncomfortable or kind of like fuck you about it right like i i if somebody were like oh, i must be so tough for you being jewish it's so hard i'd be like eh. fuck off fuck (laughs) you (laughs) I mean obviously right there's like limits to your perspective taking or whatever but it does seem to be kind of borne out in the data right so we're getting these like empirical demonstrations like you described um, uh, in, in lots of other domains that people you know the putative beneficiaries of this stuff don't really seem to benefit from it
2: yeah yeah um so listen I, I feel like we could uh now that the alcohol is kicked in I can tell you well it's really you know soaked in there. Um I feel we can go off on a rant that we'll all regret. Um but uh we're reaching time. Um so perhaps we uh we we cut it here. Mickey, year.
0: thank you. Thank you for saving me from myself. <laughs> I so appreciate it. <laughs>
2: Um, so, Anne, uh, you know, thank you so much. Uh, I, I, you know, I meant to say this in your introduction, but we've only had really a select few of repeat guests. You are one of them, um, and uh, by your own estimation, that's a place. Well, I'm honor. super honored. <laughs> <laughs> no, but obviously, we 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 love having you on, and, and we 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 appreciate your your opinions and. You're just so fucking cool, so you know we're going to keep on having you on if if you will uh, keep on accepting our
1: invitations that'd be awesome.